weeks since I was up here teaching, and I have loved uh, sitting where you guys are sitting the last couple of weeks as Larry and Kent have taught, and I was reminded, Matthew 23, uh, Jesus said to the apostles, the guy who are the, the early teachers and mentors of the church, he said, call no one rabbi or teacher, for you only have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And I love that. You know, um, we believe and we try and model that in the body of Christ, there's not some holy hierarchy where some are above others, where some are holier than others, but we are all brothers and sisters in the faith. And God gifts and calls us differently, but it's not because some of us are special and some are less special. That's just the diversity of God's gifts so that we're a healthy body. But I love being in the church and being able to see other brothers exercising their teaching and leadership gifts. We're better for it as a church body. And just to be able to say we aspire nobly, no higher than simply to be faithful brothers and sisters in Christ with each other is just a great thing. So I have loved just the last couple of weeks as other brothers have been teaching. It's been great. Let me get on to the teaching. The plaque you're looking at here is off the southwest English coast on the Isle of Scilly. And you probably can't... Well, yeah, you can read it. So this plaque was dedicated to an event in October 22, 1707 when Sir Cloudsley Shovel's body washed ashore on the Isles of Scilly at this spot, at this rock. And what precipitated this is this story briefly. The British fleet had engaged the French south of England, and the fleet is returning to their home port, and they think they know where they are, but they don't. They think they're safe, and they're one day out from port, and the Sir Shovel's ship is in the front, he's on it, and they hear this large cracking sound, and their hull is failed, and that ship goes down, and everyone on board drowns. And that not only happened to that ship, it happened to three more as well. Four ships hit the rocks off the Isles of Scilly, and all those guys drowned. It was a national disaster, you can imagine. Coming back, they, they survived the battle, but they died because they didn't know where they were. Now this launched the British government... On a quest, they, they gave a 20,000 pound reward to anyone who could come up, devise a way, so that mariners on board ships could determine longitude. So just very briefly, I won't drag this out. Back in the day, if you were on the high sea and you can't see land, you could usually determine your latitude, your position north and south based on the sun and the stars. What you couldn't discern was longitude. You didn't know where you were east and west. And because of that, mariners were susceptible to the kind of disaster that occurred to the British fleet here because they thought they knew where they were, and they weren't. Lots of shipwrecks happened because they couldn't determine their longitude. You can read this. There's a book called The Search for Longitude. There's a movie by the same name. There's a documentary by the same name. All about this. Long story short, a reclusive genius in England named John Harrison Uh, started developing timepieces. And essentially what he ended up with, the end of a life's work, literally, he developed a a watch. We would just say this is a watch. It's a timepiece that was so accurate 
And it didn't matter where you were sailing, that this thing kept accurate time. And what they would do was, they would set it to time in... Can you guess what city in England they set their watches to? To Greenwich. They set this clock, this timepiece to Greenwich. When they're at the high sea, they're looking at the clock that tells them the time in Greenwich. If it's noon in Greenwich, they would, by that clock, determine how long it was till they had high noon, and they could determine their longitude based on that. So for the development of this ability to determine longitude by this instrument, kind of like a compass would revolutionize your ability to determine your location, so did this timepiece by determining longitude. This was the difference for mariners from then on of suffering shipwreck or not. Of being able to know where they were or failing to know where they were. The Apostle Paul had a shipwreck too, and you're going to see a theme here. We're talking shipwrecks this morning. The Apostle Paul had a shipwreck too for a different reason. If you remember Paul's story, and you see this in Acts 27 and 28, Paul had been arrested, if you remember, in Jerusalem. He had been led to Caesarea there on the Israeli coast. And after a couple of years, he said, I'm tired of this. I appeal to Caesar. I want Caesar to judge me. And he had that right as a Roman citizen. So they say, fine, and they send him off. Well, they send him off in the fall of the year. And on the Mediterranean Ocean, this was the wrong time to take off. And Paul warns the Roman guard and the owner of the ship and the pilot. He says, basically, and God's told him, guys, don't do this. He said, I perceive the voyage will end with injury, much loss, not only of cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Now, Paul's not a mariner. And these guys are like, who is this? We're not going to listen to this guy. So they take their chances. And no doubt these were seasoned seamen and they were probably motivated. We want, to, we want to get to Rome sooner than later. We want to sell our cargo. We want to get paid or whatever. So they took a chance. And the chance did not pay off. If you know the story, they, they go right into a storm almost immediately. They're driven for two weeks west across the Mediterranean. Paul prays again. These guys along the way, they throw everything out of the ship because they're trying to keep it high in the water so it won't sink. They tie ropes around the hull of the ship because they're afraid the waves of this storm are going to break this ship in pieces on the high seas. They eventually, Paul prays and says, an angel of the Lord stood and talked to me and we are going to shipwreck. But all of us are going to survive. And sure enough, they hit the reef outside the Isle of Malta. They shipwreck. The ship is lost entirely, but no one dies as Paul had said. Paul had prayed and God had given him the lives of those on board the ship. These guys shipwrecked because they proceeded unwisely at a time that it would have been better to have stayed in port. They took a chance on the season and the time, and they lost. And this last one, do you guys remember this one, by the way? This is fresh enough in most people's minds. These images were on the news for a long time. This was from January 2012, and this was the Italian cruise ship, the Costa Concordia. This ship wrecked off the island of Giglio near Tuscany, Italy. 32 people died. You can't tell by the, the frame here, but that boat is so big there were over 4,200 people on board there. It was on the front leg of a, a cruise. This ship sunk like the, the tragedy off the Isles of Scilly near southwest England. This one sunk because the pilot deviated from the planned course. There was a route he was supposed to take. And he veered away from that route, just like those ships off England. They struck rocks and the hole and the thing sank. This shipwreck occurred because they deviated from 
the course. And by the way, I think the captain of this was just sentenced in the last several months, sentenced to prison for manslaughter in this one. So you guys get the picture. These shipwrecks were not planned. This was not the goal to which these guys were sailing. We want to wreck our ships. They were the result of inadequate knowledge of the ship's location. We think we know where we are, and we don't. Unwisely sailing past the time of year when sailing was the thing to do. The weather's against us, but we think we can get through anyway. And last, changing course from the designated plan. We're really going to mix metaphors this morning, guys, so hold it together with me. But So here's a picture, sort of a house. This is the third lesson in a series through 1 Timothy called God's house. And we're talking about a house on one hand, we're talking about shipwreck on the other, and we're going to mix metaphors more fully as we go along. But this is the third in a series. And what we'll see this morning is, and, and whatever else you hear, the theme is this. Paul said that in the church at Ephesus, teachers went astray from truth and suffered shipwreck. Moral, spiritual shipwreck. And people who might listen to them, to their false teaching, could suffer moral, spiritual shipwreck because they took in wrong doctrine, they believed the wrong thing because their hearts were amiss. That's the theme. The wrong thought, the wrong belief, the wrong doctrine was there because their hearts were not set on knowing and doing the truth. That was the issue. That's the big picture. So we're going to ramble. I'm going to start in 1 Timothy 1. If you guys have a Bible, this is out of the ESV I'll read. And for context, we'll start at verse 1. We're going to pick up primarily on verses 5-7 through and then verse 19 as well to get the image for our theme this morning. So this is from 1 Timothy 1, <clears throat> verses 1-7. through Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Paul said the things that you are being taught are promoting the wrong things because there's deficient motivation behind them. Speculations, genealogies, they're not pursuing things the way God meant them to. He said, and this was the lesson from a couple of weeks ago, the aim of our charge, or the New American Standard says, the goal of our instruction is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain persons, and listen to the language here, by swerving from these, think of the British fleet or think of the Costa Concordia, by swerving from these motives, from these outcomes, from these goals and desires, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Paul says they're swerving, they've deviated, they have missed the mark. Theologically, they've wandered away, they've turned aside from the path of truth. So, in Ephesus, some have swerved, some have wandered away from the goals of 
Love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. That's not their goal. So their teaching has followed their deficient motives. They've left God's goals for teaching and instruction to follow deficient motives, and they've ended up with deficient doctrines and deficient practices, all of which, of course, ended in spiritual or moral shipwreck, failure in their life, significant. So we talk God's house, that's one image, isn't it? And then shipwreck, that's another. And sorry, here's another metaphor, because I want to go back. Why are, why are these guys, what's their motive? Uh, if it's not love and a good conscience and a sincere faith, what's going on? Paul had told this same group of leaders earlier in Acts 20, he had warned them about what would happen in this church. And exactly what he said would happen, happened. We think this letter was probably written in about the middle 60s A.D. Acts 20 is at least a few years before that. And in Acts 20, Paul addressed the elders at the church of Ephesus. And this is in part what he said. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, the church, fellow believers, brothers and sisters in the faith. From among your own selves. Imagine you're in that group. This is like the Last Supper, by the way. Jesus is talking to the twelve and He says, one of you, my intimates, one of you will betray Me tonight. Well, Paul is talking to this little cadre of elders, of leaders from Ephesus, and he says, from among your group, among these guys, men will arise speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Twisted. They're going to distort the truth. They're going to turn aside from the right path. Pervert. Corrupt. So Paul says this, their teaching is going to be twisted because their motive is twisted. Their teaching is off because the motive of their heart is off and the motive of their heart is to draw people after themselves. So... The teachers, the elders, the leaders in Ephesus were not making much of God. Some of them. The guys Paul's addressing here. They're not looking at brothers and sisters in the faith and saying, what a great Father we have in heaven or what a great Savior we have in Christ. They're not making much of God. They're making much of themselves. They're teaching. In fact, at verse 7, it says they wanted to become teachers. They wanted to be known as we are the teachers of the law. We're the guys who know. But Paul said for them, they're not shepherds, they're wolves, and they're in this thing for themselves. It's a means of gaining personal status. A sense of social standing. Just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees that crucified Jesus, these guys were religious, but they were in it for what they could get out of it. It wasn't about God, and it wasn't about God's people. Their doctrine, their practices were twisted and distorted because their motives and goals rose no higher than making much of themselves. So there's the wolves. That's another metaphor. Let's go back to shipwrecks for a minute. Down at verse 19, back in 1 Timothy 1, Paul's continuing. And by the way, I'm, I'm cutting up the letter a little bit because I'm trying to take themes that run throughout the letter and pull them together so that it ends up being, if you will, a teaching on a subject instead of going through a number of or a variety of topics in a single morning. So in verse 19, Paul goes down there and he says, by rejecting this, he's talking about the teachers again, and this is from verse 18, sorry for the confusion, faith and a good conscience. He said these guys have rejected faith and a good conscience 
and they have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, Paul says, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, throughout this letter, when Paul refers to false teaching, he never gets very specific about what it is. We think we might have a good clue on what Hymenaeus and Alexander were saying, because Hymenaeus' name comes up again later in 2 Timothy. And there, the error or the doctrinal mistake he's trying to promulgate in Ephesus is this. He says that the resurrection has already occurred. He's telling people in Ephesus, the resurrection already occurred. Who knows what this looked like? We don't know for sure. We missed the resurrection. Or the resurrection occurred and we're already living the, the glorious life Christ promised. Not sure. But that might be what was going on here. So, in this event, Whatever it was, however refined or unrefined this error was, in any event, shipwreck here means that they'd forsaken some element of orthodox teaching and faith for something else. And so Paul says they've not only suffered shipwreck, but look at this at the end at verse 20. He says, I've handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. This language is remarkably similar to 1 Corinthians 5. And my tendency here is to think that these guys were in fact believers because of the language Paul uses here. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul, same author, told the Corinthian church that a guy who was practicing immorality was to be kicked out of the church both for the sake of purity in the church, God's household has some minimum standards, but also with the hope that he would respond, he would repent, and would be restored to fellowship. And if you read 2 Corinthians, it looks like that happened. It's the same language here. Paul says, I've handed these guys over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. There's a hope of restoration here. So, Hymenaeus and Alexander here swerved, they wandered, and they ultimately suffered shipwreck because their motives were deficient. They left the goal of love from a uh, pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, Paul's take on this, because there is a, there's a minimum standard in God's household for both practice and for doctrine. So Paul says, we've put these guys out of the church, we've turned them over to Satan, and we hope that this teaches them a lesson. We hope the shock to the system is so notable and so severe that they'll repent and they'll be restored to the good graces and the fellowship of God's household in Ephesus. I didn't want to leave this this morning without pointing this out. We talked about this in week one. Uh, we live in a time in which it's fairly common for folks who profess faith in Christ to say something like this. I love the Lord. I believe in God. Jesus and I are great. We're on great terms. But it's the church I don't like. It's God's other kids I don't like. It's God's household I'm not okay with. And think of where this leads. Very common today. So I say, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer in Jesus, and, and I love the Lord. The church is the problem. And so what I do is I isolate myself from the church, and I go it alone. Whether you call it Lone Ranger Christianity or whatever, but it's me and God and sort of life as I see fit to live it. Think about the implications of this based on what Paul just said here. Paul said putting someone out from under the umbrella of the church would expose them to Satan's assaults in such a way, so significantly, that they would be compelled to return to the church, to repent, 
to change and to return to the church. Christians today are saying, I can put myself in the same position that Paul put people in out of the church and be okay. Is there a problem with this? Do you see how severe this is? That I don't need the fellowship of the church. I'm okay. God and I are okay. Paul said that that was meant to be such a shock to the system for a Christian in his day that they'd repent. That we are subject to Satan's assault outside the fellowship of a local church that we're not inside the household of faith. And yet believers today are choosing to live life on their own outside the fellowship of a local church and think they're making a wise decision. This, this is unwise in the extreme that I know better than God and I am better than my brothers and sisters in the faith. You remember we talked about we looked down our nose at those other Christians. I know better, I am better than them. I'm so good that there's no one good enough for me to fellowship with. There's no church good enough, pure enough, consistent enough, forgiving enough, whatever it is that I can plug into. And so by decision, by our own wills, we put ourselves in the position that Paul said was meant to be a shock to the spiritual system that would bring about repentance. We're like prodigals. We forsake the Father's house. We take to the high road or the sea, but it's all swerving and wandering and it ends up in shipwreck. You know, too, this is something I challenge people with that tell me that they're not in a local church, but it's okay. If you're not in a local church, I can tell you, and and we go through seasons, right? I might say I'm in a new city and I'm looking for the church that I think God wants me to plug in with. I'm not talking about that. As a way of life, as a lifestyle, as a choice. So depending on how you count and the verses you include, there's 40 or 50 commands in the New Testament that are called one another passages. Love one another, serve one another, pray for one another, bear one another's burdens, and on and on and on. Friends, if you're not committed to the fellowship of a local expression of the household of God, the body of faith, you cannot obey these because they require face-to-face relational aspects of life. You can't do this on your own. You can't do these as a lone ranger. And if we're Christians, we need this. 40 or 50 times. You know, you say in the Scriptures, if God says something two or three times, He's made a point. You've got 40 to 50 one another passages in the New Testament. I think God's making a point. We need the fellowship. We need the spiritual gifts. We need the encouragement. We need the prayer. We need the accountability that we get from brothers and sisters in the faith. We need that. And if we're living life on our own, we can't get it. When believers are living apart from the fellowship of God's household, and feeling fine about it, it's only because they are blind to their own blindness. They are deaf to their own deafness. They are like, and I say this with the authority of Scripture, they are like the fool in Proverbs who have chosen to sit down in Lady Folly's household not knowing it's it's costing them their life. That they are already in a shipwreck and they don't even know it. If I'm the enemy and I can wreck your life and you don't even know it, that's a good day. And that's where many in the household of faith are today. So, ask yourselves this before we move on. It's easy. We're here together. We're we're amongst the faithful, aren't we? Because we're here. We're committed. We're, We're in the fellowship. What might, though, if you said for yourself, and this is just a point of self examination, if I said my own tendencies, the motives of my own heart, 
the, the ways in life that I know I'm tempted to sin, that I might suffer shipwreck, what might those mean for us? You know, probably most of us know ourselves well enough. What am I inclined to that would lead me to shipwreck? What might that be? So we could think of there's moral failure, certainly. That'd be a temptation for some of us. Various aspects of pride that would isolate us from others would be temptations to shipwreck also. Forsaking a spouse or a family or children. Or guys, even, and this isn't a minor thing, even just brothers and sisters in the faith that I say, nope, you've offended me once too many, or I'm not, I'm not with you anymore and I'm going my own way. What might shipwreck look like for you and me? These warnings are here for a reason. We're not smarter than the guys in the first century. We're not holier than them either. We're just we're out of the same stuff, right? Our humanity is no different than theirs. In what ways are we tempted that we might suffer shipwreck as well? Uh, this theme continues. I'm going to jump way back to the end of the book in chapter 6, 1 Timothy 6. Listen to variations on this theme. So there's swerving and wandering and shipwreck. Listen to this more related to interpersonal here. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, verses 3-5, through he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, heterodoxy, not orthodoxy, not the straight truth of God's Word received, but something different, and doesn't agree with the sound, and listen to that contrast, sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, what Paul received and gave to them, and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit. This is motive. This is what he's after. Puffed up with conceit. He understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce... Now listen to what these things produce. So in contrast to chapter 1, verse 5, love from a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith, listen to what these produce, these arguments. He says, uh, envy and dissension, divisions in the ranks of the family... Slander. I'm talking badly about my brothers and sisters in the faith. Evil suspicions. Do you guys ever feel tempted with evil suspicions towards people you're called to love? That's what's going on here. Constant friction. I just I don't feel at peace with you. I'm always contentious or feel like you're always contentious towards me. Constant friction among people who are depraved in mind. Deprived of truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. You know, when you read earlier um, 1 Timothy 3, it gives the qualifications for elders. And a, a person who's contentious is not qualified, Paul says, to be a leader in the church, to teach others. But that's exactly what's going on with these leaders here. They're argumentative. Guys, what's the dynamic in an argument? If I'm arguing with you, I'm laboring to show that you're wrong and I'm right. I'm up here, you're down there. It's all about me. And this would be true in all times. Social media multiplies this effect today. He talks about controversies. What's the latest controversy? You know, news today changes at a dizzying moment. You know, Judge Antonin Scalia died, right? And, you know, I saw a headline once that talked about Scalia's death, and minutes later it's talking about implications for the Supreme Court and the, the um, cases that are already being heard and what's going to happen with all those. This is in, in minutes. The guy's died. We haven't, we haven't even talked about his life yet. We're going on to the implications all in one morning. 
Well, in this age, it's so easy to move from one controversy to another. And so if I want to be important, what I do is I bring myself up to speed on the latest controversy because now I'm the expert. And now I'll tell you what's going on in the latest controversy. You can see where all of this goes. It's all about me. As in an argument, I win. In the controversy, I'm the expert. It's all about me. And you're here to make me feel better about me, me, me. That's the, that's the motivation here. Go down to verse 10 in chapter 6. You know, I'll bet everybody here knows this verse. I'll bet you didn't even have to memorize it. If you've never read your Bible, you've heard this verse. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But look at the phrase that follows it. Through this craving, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the same language They've wandered away from the truth. Why? What's the motive here? I want more money. Why? Because I want to make much of myself. I want to buy this. I want to have this setting, this social standing. I want to have this power, this ability to do these things, all based on money. So here again, it's about me. And I'm wandering from the faith. I'm wandering to the shoals of shipwreck because my motive is about me. And the last, verses 20 and 21 You can imagine Paul. Paul knows what's going on in this church. He'd warned them, and it's happening. He's concerned for them. So as he's winding down on this letter, he says, he's pleading with Timothy, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. The deposit is the truth. It's orthodoxy. It's the teachings about who Jesus is, what He did, and the implications for our life. Guard it, he said, Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Again, they've gone off, off the path. They swerved from the faith. Now guys, you've got all this language about swerving and turning, missing the mark, suffering shipwreck. If that was true in the first century, it might be true of us today as well. So then the question becomes, okay, so what do I do to avoid swerving and wandering and ultimately shipwreck? What do I do? Paul's already told us in part, but I want to go back to John 7.17. It says it nicely. You know, Jesus went to the Jewish nation. His people, He's the Messiah, and He presents Himself in that fashion, right? And what does He get primarily? Primarily gets rejection, doesn't He? He's not accepted by the nation for who and what He is. And in that context, in John 7.17, He said this, if anyone's will... If anyone's will, their heart, their desire, their motive, if anyone's will is to do God's will, if my heart, if my motive is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Isn't that interesting? Guys, you know, truth is not primarily intellectually comprehended. You know, the simplest among us, children can learn deep biblical truths, can't they? Children can comprehend the Gospel and orthodox elements of the faith. You don't have to have a high IQ to know what Paul meant for us to know as believers in God's household. It's not about IQ. It's not about intellect. It requires our mind and our thoughtfulness, but that's not the primary deal. Jesus says, if you're not willing to do My Father's will, you won't know the truth. This is enlightening, isn't it? You know what this says? This says that your ability and mind to discern truth is based on my willingness to obey God. 
That's the bottom line. How are you and I protected from doctrinal error? From people we listen to on the radio? Or in another church? We've always said here, we encourage you to compare what we teach with the Scriptures. We're not holding ourselves up and above everybody else. We would encourage you, if you hear anything, compare it to the Scriptures. Absolutely. Our motive, our heart, our willingness to do what God commands us to do predicates our ability to discern spiritual truth. That changes everything, doesn't it? Not about intellect. Not about IQ. It's about my willingness. It's about the motive of my heart. Jesus said, if you won't do do the Father's will, you won't know the truth about me. That's exactly the thing. Have you guys ever known somebody... um, Maybe they're going along with you in the faith, their brother or sister in Christ, and and all seems fine maybe. Or maybe it seems a little off kilter, but we assume the best, we believe the best, we pray, etc. And then you start hearing things that maybe cause you a little trouble initially. You wonder maybe what's going on. So they're saying they're having some struggles. and, And maybe they say, you know, I'm not really sure about the biblical record. The transmission of the New Testament text, I think it might be a little off. You know, the resurrection claim, or was there really a Jericho that really fell in the Old Testament of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, on and on and on. And you know, it sounds serious. It's like, man, I'm really having a struggle of faith. And you know, almost always what they're not struggling with is the faith or the truth. You know, almost inevitably what this is, it's a person who has said to themselves, I've changed what I want. And basically what I want is, I want to do what I want to do. And so now I tell you, that I don't believe what I used to believe or I find it harder to believe than I used to, the deal is I want to be free to do something. And especially if I can isolate myself from you, I can go do things on my own again. That's usually where this goes, almost inevitably. There's a desire to live life on our own terms and that's where that leads. Now, Solomon was a wise guy. didn't always live well. didn't finish well for sure. But he was a wise guy. Wisest guys on the, on the earth, right? Besides Jesus, that's what the Scripture says about him. He said this in Proverbs 4.23. Same theme. Same theme. Watch over your hearts with all diligence. Not your mind, not your IQ, not your intellect. The heart here represents what am I passionate about? What do I love? What is my will set on? Watch over your heart with all diligence for from it, from your heart, your will, your motives flow the issues of life. It's not what I say up here I believe, it's what I want down here that determines what I'll believe and do. It's motive, it's heart, it's passion, it's desire. That determines what I say I believe. A heart to know, love, and serve God leads to right doctrine and right practice. We conclude with Paul. And by the way, these are on your study sheet. These are not absolute statements, but you weigh them very heavily. Motives determine outcomes. Personal desires determine doctrine. Our heart's desires are reflected in our doctrine and our behavior. And friends, the Gospel claims our minds, our hearts, and our actions. We have a handout that we give to folks when we're meeting with them for acute discipleship issues. And it's very simple, and I've shared it here before, but it's, it's profound. It's simple, not simplistic. And the question is this, why do we do the things we do? And what's the answer? Because we want the things we want. Why do we do the things we do? Because we want the things we want. That's what's going on here. 
If I want to do God's will, I'll know the truth. If I want what Mike wants instead, I'm compromising my ability to discern truth from error and avoid spiritual or moral shipwreck. So it's about the heart. Guys, the Gospel, when we're talking about, Paul uses faith, I think it's 18 times in this letter, and sometimes it just means the, the, the core orthodox statements of truth. Who is Jesus? What did He do? Who's God the Father? What's the big picture of life and the world that we're called to affirm and live out, base our lives on? The Gospel, the truth of faith, gives us, think about shipwreck again, going back to that initial image, the ability to plot a course in life that avoids shipwreck. Whether you think it's a compass or it's a timepiece on the ship of your life, we have in the faith, in the truth of God's Word, great song that we opened up with this morning, we have in the truth of the Scriptures, we have a compass. We have something that gives us longitude and latitude by which we can steer a clear course. We have that in the truth of the Word if we want to use it. We have in that same truth, that account of truth, the faith, the wisdom to know when and where to proceed in life and when to hold tight. When it's time to, to lie up in port or when it's time to launch out at sea. We have that in the Scriptures. We also have through those the discipline to stay the course in life the way our Lord and Master sets it for us, not to veer off and hit the rocks in either direction. Guys, this is only possible when we share God's heart and God's desires. Your heart and mind determines what we're willing to believe. What are we willing to do? Are we willing to obey God? This starts, by the way, first. You know, you can grow up in a church. You could have, you could have been in this church for years and never obeyed the Gospel. The first thing we obey is the Gospel. I love Acts 17.30. It's put in very forceful terms. Paul says, God commands all men everywhere to repent. To change your view, your heart, your motives towards God. To repent. We're called to believe the Gospel. Lord, I recognize. I want to live life on my own. I've sinned against You. I'm not holy like You're holy. And I obediently repent of my wayward sins and accept the payment Jesus has made on my behalf. We call that the, in Romans 1.5, that's called the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. It starts there. Having come into the faith, are we committed to living out the common faith in God's household, in a local church? By the way, it doesn't have to be this one. But a place where you know God's called you and they teach the Word and it's, it's serious about the serious things of the faith God's serious about. Are we committed to that? Are we personally committed to humbly honoring God our Father by doing His will? Guys, the acid test is when I read something in the Bible or another brother or sister in the faith challenges me with something that requires my obedience, am I willing to do it? Am I spending time each day with my Father in the truth of the Word with a heart willing to obey what I learned there? Are we in relationships close enough to others in God's family. That's why we talk about home groups and accountability groups and men's groups and women's groups and women's conferences and men's advances. It's because you've got to have that, those relationships that are close enough that others know you and you know them. And you pray for them and they pray for you. And you hold them accountable and they hold you accountable. We're liable to shipwreck apart from those kinds of relationships. So, to the truth of God's Word, and that's what we've got, we add a heart set on God and God's things, 
and we have everything we need to avoid shipwreck and make it safely home like those ships have done. Let's pray. Father, your Apostle Peter said you've given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Father, we want to bring humble spirits, hearts, desires. Lord, we want to love what you love. We want hearts set on you. Lord, our hearts are deceptive beyond our own finding out. Would you by your spirit and your word, the fellowship of the saints, brothers and sisters in Christ, would you show us where we're veering, wandering away from the path? Would you show us, Lord, the places perhaps in front of our lives that might bring about shipwreck? God, would you out of your great mercy and grace continue to work in our lives and hearts such that we give you a full obedience that glorifies you and encourages life in us and those we touch. In Jesus' name, amen.